Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 11 of Revelation, viewing the seventh trumpet and the praises given to God in heaven. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Well, look at verse 16. He says, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. And once again, as we've seen before, we, we see these angelic, this angelic worship stirring up, and, and it's giving rise to humans who are then joining in the worship. And in this moment, we're, we're clearly back in the heavenly throne room of God where we saw all these things happening before. And as we discussed when we studied similar events back in chapter 4, these 24 elders are men, not angels, because elder is a term that's always associated with men, never with angels. And they're clearly some representative group of, of human beings who are present in the heavenly court. Who exactly they are, it, it remains a mystery. All the different speculations of whether or not it's the 12 patriarchs of Israel and the 12 disciples, you know, th that may be others who I tend to agree with simply believe that they're nameless representatives of the church in heaven. As I told you back in chapter 4, it may even be based on the priestly system in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, where there was a rotation taking place of the priests who were serving. And it could be that each of us in eternity will be getting multiple turns. How many turns can you have in eternity? right? I mean, it could go on forever, right? You just keep getting turns. But on a rotation, we just don't know. We don't know because the scriptures don't reveal it to us. But what matters more than who these guys are is what they're doing. Look at verse 17. It says, saying, we give, give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reigned. John now tells us that these 24 elders begin giving thanks to God. They're just crying out thanks to him, but they aren't thanking him for something that he's already done. But like the angels, they're, they're also giving him thanks for what they know he's about to do, for what they know he's about to do. Like the angels, they, they know with all certainty that he's about to fulfill the promises that he's made in his word, that he's in the process of laying full claim to the throne of the earth and to all mankind, that he's in the process of bringing everything into perfect submission to himself. And like the angels, they're rejoicing because of the certain victory that they know is coming. Is your spiritual focus such that you can give thanks to God like this? Think about that. Is it? Can you give thanks even for the things that haven't happened yet, but which you know God has promised to do in your life and in this world? Some of you guys are, are suffering with physical ailments. You, you, your bodies are just, they're not functioning the way uh, maybe you would want it to, or, or as we would say, I, I don't like using the word normal because what's normal? You know, but, but as maybe we, we think we're designed to, your bodies just aren't functioning, but you know what God has said to you, that one day he's going to give you a new body, that he's going to do that, that he's going to change it all, that you're not going to be dealing with this anymore. No more, you know, heart issues, no more cut fingers, no more, you know, whatever it is, you're, you're not going to deal with it anymore. It's going to be gone. Can you give thanks even though that hasn't happened yet, simply on the basis that you know? that it's coming, that he's promised it to you and it's coming. 
Can you, can you give thanks for the promises that Jesus has made to you that haven't been fulfilled yet, but that you know will one day be fulfilled? What does he tell you? He's changed your heart already. He's going to change all of what you are in a spiritual sense one day. He's changing you from within, but one day he's going to finish the good work that he began in you. Now, if you're like me, I get so frustrated with myself <laughs> over my spiritual failures. I get so frustrated when, when, like Paul, you know, what I know to do, I don't do. <laughs> and the things I shouldn't do, I do do, you know? And I get so frustrated. But in the process of that, can you still give thanks? Because you know that one day, and not to, to make an excuse for not continuing to step out and walking forward in the things we should do or to give up and just say, well, I'll wait for that day. No, that's not scriptural either. But can you, in the process of your frustrations with where you are spiritually, can you give thanks because you know that Jesus has promised to finish the good work that he's begun in you? Or whatever other promises that you can lay claim to in the word, can you be patient and thank him as you wait? Do you have a, a certainty deep in your heart that, uh, that assures you that these things, they're going to come to pass? If you're a believer, let me just say this to you. If you're a believer, you should. You should. You should be able to praise God, not only for the things he's done, but for everything he's told you in his word that he's going to do, even though you might not see it right now. And you might not even see how he can do it right now. I didn't see how I could be saved, but I am today. I don't have to understand how he could save me. I know he did it. And even if the circumstances of your life at the moment seem out of control or dark or overwhelming, you can still give praise to God for the things he's promised to do for you because he will. These men, these angels, they can't see into the future. They can't see ahead like God can see ahead. So their praises aren't the result of physically being able to see the fulfillment of these things. But they're praising him because they believe his promises. They believe his word to be true. They're praising him because of their firm faith in him and in his word to them. And I believe that they have this kind of faith because they've come to know God intimately. They've come to know him intimately. They've, they've come to know his nature. They've come to know his character. And they've come to know his power personally in their lives. And as you come to know God intimately like this, as you come to know his nature as you come to know his character, as you come to know his power in your life, you'll also begin to develop and display faith in God like this because you'll begin to trust in his word that'll defy logic in a way that'll defy it. You'll be able to praise him for the things unseen and unrealized because you know that he's promised it to you, not because you know how he'll work it out, but simply because you know he's promised it to you. But now they go in their declarations and, and praise of him. Look what they say next. Look at verse 18. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. The nations were angry. John tells us that these elders see this. They're saying, man, the nations, Lord, they're, they're angry. Angry at what? angry at God. Angry at God. The world is angry because God is coming to rule over them. <laughs> They're raging because of it, that the world doesn't want him to come and rule over them. They don't want to be in subjection to him, you see. 
we already see that anger growing in our world today. And why well, I said we'll come back to this, but that's exactly the connection. What we see in our world today is exactly this. It's, it's, it's a growing anger that's growing in our world. The godless people who, comp- who comprise the nations of our world today, by and large, they don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with them. They, they don't want to submit themselves to him. They're, they're in open rebellion against him, and their anger at him is becoming more and more apparent. Now, they'll tolerate religion. <laughs> they'll tolerate religion. You know why that is? Because they can control religion. But they won't tolerate Jesus. Not, not the truth of the gospel. They won't tolerate that because they can't control the gospel. They can't control what Jesus... He even took control away because he says to be saved, it isn't about what you do, it's about what I did. But what's required is that you believe. <laughs> Boy, that's complete lack of control on the part of man. And, and they, they reject him not just because of that, but they reject him because of the submission that they know that he requires of them. And, and people simply don't want to submit to God on his terms. They, they rage against him in every way they can. The hearts of men, the hearts of women in our world are like people that Jesus describes in Luke chapter 19. In this parable, Jesus tells us about a nobleman who goes on a trip to secure more kingdoms for himself. And while he's on this trip, in his absence, he exerts his authority through servants that he puts in place and he leaves with charge over the land that belongs to him and, and they're to do that while he's gone. But note the response of the people. Jesus says in Luke nineteen fourteen, Luke nineteen fourteen, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Isn't that our world today? <laughs> Isn't that the message you hear when you stand up and say about Jesus? And the, we see the, the, the hope of the gospel. We see the joy of the gospel. And, and people will not have him reign over us. Will not have this man reign over me. The citizens of this world, they, they resent God's authority. And they're more and more crying out, we will not have this man reign over us. You know what? I once said that. I once said that. And now here in this passage in Revelation, John describes how this attitude, it's going to reach a pinnacle during the the tribulation as the godless people of the world burn in anger towards the Lord who they now see coming to take his rightful place of authority. But what these elders are also saying is that God is now completely just in judging the world for its rejection of him. Look again at verse 18. He says, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. You know the unsaved today, of which could be any of us at one point in time in our lives, right? So I don't say this haughty as though I'm something that's better than what other people have. What I am is because of what Jesus has done for me alone, and if it weren't for him, I'd be like the rest of the world, Okay? But he's saying that the, the unsaved of this world, they're destroying the world. They're the ones that are destroying it. But, but here, as, it, as they continue on in this, John says that these elders declare that these nations that are angry with God, and, 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 and as such, because of their anger, God is, is right and he's just as he responds in his wrath against them. In fact, there's an interesting play in words being used here in this verse to make that point. In the Greek, the word used for angry when referring to the attitude of the world is, is the same word that's used for wrath in referring to the righteous judgment of God. And Greek Bible scholars tell us that what this verse is really saying is that the wrath of men is impotent, but the wrath of God is omnipotent. 
and that the wrath of, of men is wicked, but the wrath of God is holy and right and just. Here again is truth. I mean, this is truth. God isn't to blame for the wrath that, that, that he pours out on man, but man himself is to blame. Man himself is to blame. Man is the one who's responsible for God's wrath being poured out against him. Man is the one who's making the choice to reject God and to, to resist his authority. And as such, man is simply reaping what he deserves for his rebellion against God. In a sense, man lights the match that starts the fire, not God. God is completely justified in his response. His wrath is just and he's blameless in pouring it out. I say this because I hear people all the time blame God for everything that happens. They're blaming him for every disaster. And, and where there are legitimate judgments, they blame him for doing that. And most of all, they blame him for even a concept of judgment in hell. They say, if God is love, why would he judge anyone? Why would he do this? Why would a loving God send me to hell? Or why would he subject anyone to hellish conditions as a result of his judgment, such as what's going to happen in the end times? But scripture makes the answer clear. God doesn't do it. Man does it to himself. Man does it to himself. Man subjects himself to, to God's judgment. Man sends himself to hell. God doesn't do it. In fact, do you know that hell was never created or intended for man in the first place? Do you know this? In fact, Scripture tells us in Matthew 25 and verse 41 that actually God prepared hell for the devil and his angels, not for men. Here's what it says, Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And oh yeah, that rotten neighbor that lives next to you, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. The devil and his angels. The devil and his angels. Instead, what Scripture actually says is that God prepared and intended man for his kingdom, for his dwelling place. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, verse 34, that this was the place that God prepared for man even before the foundation of the world. Here's what he says, Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But by rejecting God, by rejecting his authority over their lives, man chose to reject the very thing that God prepared for him in the first place. And as a result, man, not God, sealed and continues to seal his own eternal destiny of judgment in hell. God doesn't seal it. Man seals it for himself. You know, it's funny. Uh, sometimes the attitudes of men spiritually get played out in the practical. But, you know, it's amazing. Look at, look at the response in our world today as this hatred for God is growing of the hatred for law enforcement, right? The cops did this to me. They did this to me. Well, wait a minute. Did you rob that store? Well, yeah, but they singled me. No, wait a minute. Did you rob the store? Did you shoot that man? Did you do? Who did it? Did they do it or are they just responding because of what you've done? But man doesn't want to think that way. Man doesn't want the responsibility. And that's exactly what we're seeing in these last days. And, and, and it's time, I, I think, that we, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that any of us do that, but even we as Christians can sometimes in, wrongly indict God for things. You know, we need to stop that. We need to start putting responsibility where responsibility lies on man himself. And in this day, these elders tell us that the judgment and wrath of God will rightly be poured out on sinful men who opened the door for it to be poured out upon them by their rejection and their hostility of God. But look at verse 19. 
He says this, then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. And so now as we begin to look at this, they're seeing all these different things that are, that are happening as, as, as John begins to see into the temple. In fact, he sees something absolutely remarkable. He sees the temple of God opened in heaven before him. He sees it opened. And, and we've known all along that a lot of the things that John's been describing, uh, that Jesus has been revealing to them, uh, to him has been connected to the temple. We saw the furnishings. We saw the activities in heaven throughout the study of, of Revelation that, that correlated directly with the things that existed in the earthly temple or tabernacle. And, and we looked at passages like Hebrews 8 that spoke of how the earthly tabernacle and the temple was what? It was actually designed to be a foreshadowing, a faint reflection of the more perfect tabernacle that exists in heaven. But here for the first time in this book, This truth is specifically being brought to light as we're told directly of the existence of this heavenly temple. As John is now sees it opened up right before him, he's looking at a physical temple right before his very eyes. And what he's saying as he looks into it is that he could see the Holy of Holies. He could see the Holy of Holies. You know what that is? That's the place where where in the earthly tabernacle or the temple that God's presence dwelt among men. That's where he was. It was the place that was kept sealed and hidden beyond that gigantic veil, the place where only the high priest could go once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But in this moment, John is looking right into it. He's looking right into it. He's looking right into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's glory dwells. Now, how do we know it's the Holy of Holies that he's looking into? Because he tells us he sees something in there that only exists in the Holy of Holies the ark. He sees the ark of the covenant. You know, that golden box with the angelic, you know, angels on top that Indiana Jones is constantly trying to find, right? That's it. And he's seeing it. Now, I I do want to tell you this. You do realize that Indiana Jones probably isn't going to find it because it's not on earth anymore. It disappeared from the temple during the Babylonian invasion when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem and it hasn't been seen since. And although some have speculated that the Babylonians took it, there's no biblical or historic evidence that would support that idea to being true. In fact, it isn't mentioned in any of the biblical or historical records that list the furnishings that the Babylonians took when they pillaged the temple. Some also argue that the Jews may have taken it and hidden it before the Babylonians took control. But, but again, there's no evidence that supports that. It's also interesting to note that nowhere in Scripture or in the historical records do we find any mention of the ark in any of the temples that were later constructed. It, was, it wasn't in Zerubbabel's temple, nor was it in Herod's temple. Add to that... The fact that nowhere does Scripture indicate that it will even exist in any of the future earthly temples. No mention of it in the tribulation temple and no mention of it in the millennial temple. In fact, in referring to the last days, Jeremiah tells us this. Jeremiah 3.16 says this, Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. So you see, all this hoopla over the lost Ark of the Covenant might just be that, hoopla. 
The ark, the ark exists. I'm not denying the existence of the ark, but I'm suggesting that it doesn't exist on the earth anymore. God, God may have very well removed the ark before the Babylonians could get their hands on it. And he may have very well taken it based on this passage in Jeremiah and, and what we're going to see in a moment, that he may have taken it to heaven and he placed it in his heavenly tabernacle where John now sees it and it will remain there until the true tabernacle spoken of in Revelation 21.3 is established in the new Jerusalem on the new earth, not on the present earth. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 21. And I don't want to dispel ideas you guys have. And I know there's lots of authors that say that they're going to discover it and they're going to find it and the Jews need it to have the temple. That may or may not be true. They may build a replica of it and put it in the temple so they can do what they want. But do you think God's going to be in that tribulation temple in that, tab- in that ark? Uh-uh. He's not going to be there. But John now looks into the Holy of Holies, into the heavenly temple, and, and we need to ask, how can he look into this part of the temple where, where God's glory dwells and survive looking into it? Simple. He can do it because the veil has been torn. Because the veil has been torn. Because on the day that Jesus died, his blood made permanent atonement for our sins. And as a result, the veil was rent in two so that, so that human beings could have direct access to God once again. And now John is describing that access to us in in very real and in a very physical way. He's looking into the very place where God dwells. And what he sees and what he hears is overwhelming. Look at the latter part of Revelation 11, 19. He says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. What's he seeing here? The thing that John is hearing and seeing, which he's describing to us, are the sights and the sounds associated with God's judgment. Lightning, thunderings, earthquakes, great hail. All of these things are things that are associated with judgment. And what it indicates is that God's fury, man, God's fury is building. This is like a kettle cooking, you know, like a pressure cooker that's happening in this moment as he prepares to unleash the next and final rounds of judgment, that the, the worst round yet, the seven bold judgments. But before we get to those judgments, John has more to tell us about things that are going to dig a little bit deeper into the events that are going to be unfolding and affecting the earth during the overall tribulation period. And we'll get to that next week. We'll, we'll take a look at that. We'll break into that. But, but, but as we close today, I, I just want to leave you with this encouragement. Although one day, John, like John, you know, we're going to, we as the redeemed of Christ, we're going to have that same privilege that John is now having that he's describing to us. We're going to be able to look physically into that innermost part of the temple. Yeah, you and me, the place where even Jews couldn't go, the Gentiles are going to get to go. And we're going to be able to look right in, into the Holy of Holies, where we will see the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat upon which the, the presence of God dwells. But we don't need to wait until that day to enter the presence of God like this. We don't need to wait. That veil has, that, that separated us from God has been torn open on the day that Jesus died. That veil, that, that, that curtain, it was literally a curtain that, that was 60 feet high. Now think about this for a minute. It was 60 feet high. It was 30 feet wide. It was at least, it may have been long, or thicker than this, but at least four inches thick and which reportedly took 300 men to hold it as it weighed nearly four tons. Wow. On the day that Jesus died, that little piece of cloth was ripped from top to bottom. Something which only God could do, right? 
bottom to top. Maybe somebody could say, well, they took knives and they cut up top to bottom. Uh Uh-uh. Top to bottom. And it was torn as an indication that that access had been granted to God's holy presence for all who believe by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And, And if that's you, you are told in Scripture that you can enter the holiest place through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 19, or 10.19 tells us that. That we can come boldly before God's very throne of grace, before the mercy seat, where you're going to find his mercy and his grace to help you in your time of need and for all of your, your needs, just as Hebrews 4.16 tells us. Access has been granted to you through Jesus Christ. It's been granted to you. And that, if, that access... It isn't effective someday. It's effective right now. It's effective right now, not just in the future day when you're going to be like John, standing in that temple, looking with your very eyes into his presence, but right now. And my question to you this morning is, are you taking advantage of this? Are you taking advantage of this? And this isn't just about prayer. Yeah, prayer is the the greatest way that we enter that place. But are you just walking in and fellowshipping daily with the Lord? You know, when I open my Bible in the morning or in the evening or when I can and I'm opening it up, man, my my heart is, Lord, I just want to be in fellowship with you. I want to be in your presence. I want to see you. I can't see you with these yet, but I can see you with this. What's beating in my chest? Are you doing that? Are you fellowshipping with God like that? I hope that you are. I hope that you can say you are. I I hope and pray that we can all say that we are because it's an awesome privilege. We don't fully grasp what a privilege we've been given. If the Jews were alive who followed the law in that day, they'd tell you what a privilege this is now, you know, because they couldn't approach them in this way, but you and I can. And it's also a blessed foretaste of what's coming blessed foretaste of what we will have in that day when we stand physically in his presence. I leave you with Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Don't go by your own strength. Don't go by your own works. Go by the blood of Jesus and believe in what he's done for you by a new living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.